brash manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and the smell of fresh manna. Today you will be listening to Garrett Morgan, pastor of Big Rapids, Bristol, and Reed City Seventh-day Adventist churches. And now... Here's Pastor Garrett. Amen. He is good. And we truly need to thank him every day. Amen. He is good to us even when we don't feel like things are going well. God is still good. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. But before we do, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. You can bow your heads. I'm going to kneel here. Father, Lord, we thank you for your Sabbath. And like we've just been reminded by our sister Helen, you are good. And Father, we just are in awe, not just of who you are, but what you have done and how your character has remained unchanged throughout eternity and how you have sacrificed and risked everything so that you could save poor humanity. And Father, that's truly who we are. We are poor humanity. We're in rough shape and we grow more so each and every day. But Father, you have promised to make an end and to change all of that, and you have already won the battle. Now you're coming to finish it, and we cannot wait for that day, but Lord, there's still a work to be done. As we read your word today, we ask that we would hear you. May we not be distracted by myself or anyone around us, but may we hear your words from your book. We pray in your name. Amen. I'd like to turn to a... a probably a well-known story in the book of Acts, if you would go there with me today, the book of Acts. We're going to contrast a few different stories here in Scripture, but we're going to start here with the book of Acts in Acts chapter 17, and we're going to start here in verse 22. And this is Paul, and Paul is in Greece, and he's on Mars Hill. And if you know anything about Greece, especially during the time of Paul and even a little bit beforehand, I would say that Greece is one of the birthplaces of modern secularism. And those of you that know your history would probably agree with that. They were known for being very intelligent people, but just because you're intelligent doesn't mean that you're right, right? And they were very known for having polytheism, many different gods, right? You had Zeus, you had the Greek mythology. I mean, you can just continue to talk about that and all the different gods that they had. And Paul is coming through Greece, and he recognizes that he is ministering in a very secular, intellectual environment. And as he is there, he says some very interesting things in Acts chapter 17. We're going to read this here in verse 22. Notice what it says here. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens... I perceive that in all things you are too, and what's that word there? Superstitious. Now, that's an interesting word. He's there amongst where scholars would talk and break down very theological, at least in their mind, terms and and debates and all of these things. And as Paul gets there, he makes not an accusation, but he makes an observation. And he says, it seems like that you men of Athens are superstitious. Now, superstitious is an interesting word. What does that mean? 
What is superstition? Anybody want to care to make a definition of that? What is superstition? Just, just take a minute here. What is superstition? Okay, believing in something supernatural. Okay, yes. Okay, that's a really good example. Believing when a black cat crosses in front of you that it means something like something's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Like omens, those kinds of things, right? Okay, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I've heard the saying that if you step on a crack in a sidewalk, that you're doing something to your dead ancestors, always step over the crack in the sidewalk, right? There's thousands of these superstitions that people have, from some that people take very seriously to your avid sports fanatic that doesn't wash his football jersey before they've won a game, right? I mean, superstition goes on and on and on. But Paul here is talking about superstition in a religious sense, which is interesting. And he keeps going here. Notice what he says here in verse 23. For as I passed by and beheld, now here's the other word I want to focus on, your devotions. Now I want to pause there again. Devotion, at least in my mind, I've always heard it in a Christian sense, right? But Paul is using this in terms of paganism. He's saying, I've looked at your devotions. When we think of devotions, we think of spending time in our word every morning and night, right? You think of Daniel, you think of the things that spending time with God. And here he's telling these pagan people that as he's observing their devotions, that they're a little superstitious. Let me ask you, when you go to the root of the word devotions, you find devoted, right? Or devote. Is it possible to be devoted or giving devotion to something or someone that isn't God? Very much so, right? And people do it all the time. And we're going to keep going on this thought. Notice what he says. As I pass and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God whom therefore, now this is interesting again, you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Here's another question. Is it possible to ignorantly worship something? Is it possible for pagans to ignorantly worship God? And sometimes that can be a positive thing. I don't know who's out there. I don't know who you are, but I want to get to know you. I'm sure God smiles upon that. But is it possible for us, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, to ignorantly worship God? I think it is. And we're going to talk about this today. But I want to focus on this unknown God description here for just a moment. Let me ask you another question. Our sermon's full of questions today. Does God want to be known or unknown to his creation? He longs to be known. How do you know that? How do you know that God wants to be known to you? Okay, I mean, just open the Bible, right? And over and over again, he's trying to show himself to his people, right? Amen. It's something he craves, right? He craves making himself known to his creator. That's why he made us. Okay, why else? Why else do you know that God wants to make himself known? Those were two very good answers. Looking for maybe one or two more. Don't be shy. I'm paid by the month, not by the hour. <laughs> How about sending his son on the cross? Right? I mean, that is the ultimate 
Christ trying to make himself, make God known to humanity. God obviously wants to make himself known. But if he is not known and he is in fact unknown, it's not to the fault of God, but it's to the fault of us, isn't it? You know, one of the questions that I get a lot as a pastor, and it's a good question, I've heard it many times, it's along the lines of, why is it that I'm not getting a lot out of my devotions? It seems like when I pray that God doesn't listen, it seems like when I'm reading my Bible that I'm not connecting with it, and it's really frustrating when at one point you felt like you were connecting with God in your devotions, and then at one point you're not connecting anymore. And so people will often come to me, maybe they've come to you and they ask the question, why is it that I'm not feeling connected with God during my devotions? And one of my first questions that I ask them back is, are you being devoted to your devotions, right? That's why we use the word devotions. Devotions work well only when we're devoted to God, amen? When we're doing it consistently, when we're being sporadic with our devotions, then not only are our devotions going to be sporadic, but God is going to become unknown. Not because God removes himself from us, but because we begin to lose sight of who God is. God doesn't move, but we do, right? And if we do not become devoted in our devotions because we love God, then God becomes to seem something that is distant something that is formal, someone that is out there, but we have lost sight of. And at that point, we're worse off than the pagans here. But we'll talk about that in a minute. But let's contrast this to another story. Go to the book of Genesis, if you will. Now, we briefly talked about the story a few weeks ago, but I want to focus on a different character here in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, you have three main characters. You have Abram, who will become Abraham in a little bit. You have Sarai, who will become Sarah here in a little bit. And then you have Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian handmaid, right? And God had, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, God had promised Abraham and Sarah that he would make them the parents of a great generation, right? Of multitudes of children and offspring that this was going to be his people. And then a problem arose. And we made this clarification just a few weeks ago. When God promised that a child would come from a very old Abram and a very old Sarah, pushing 190, right? God promised that a child would come from them. There was no problem until Abram and Sarah made a problem. Amen? Even though they were old, God promised that it would happen, so they should have had faith and said, well, we might be getting old, but that's up to God. That's not on us. But when they began to question God and take matters into their own hands, what wasn't a problem became a problem. There's a lesson there to learn, isn't there? So often we are doing well with God, we're having faith with him, and then we take things in our own hands, and what happens? It blows up in our face. And we begin to make a problem. And Abram and Sarah are about to make a big problem. 
Sarah comes, we're not going to read all this for sake of time, but Sarah comes to Abram and says, hey, I'm not getting any younger and neither are you, but I have this handmaid, her name is Hagar, why don't you marry her and have a child through her? And Abram doesn't say, well, that's against the Lord, but he says, okay, sounds about right. And he does it. And Hagar becomes with child. But it's interesting, as soon as this happens, Notice what takes place in Genesis 16, verse 4. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. You can read between the lines there. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. Imagine that. You introduce polygamy, and what takes place? Problems. And not just problems because Sarah was angry, and not just problems because Hagar was this innocent person. But there was problems on both sides. In fact, let me read this to you from Patriarchs and Prophets. It says this about Hagar. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 145. Flattered with the honor of her new position as Abraham's wife and hoping to be the mother of the great nation to descend from him, Hagar became proud and boastful and treated her mistress with contempt. Mutual jealousness disturbed the peace of the once happy home. Forced to listen to the complaints of both wives, Abram vainly endeavored to restore harmony. Though it was Sarah's earnest entreaty that he had married Hagar, she now reproached him as the one as at fault. She desired to banish her rival, but Abraham refused to permit this, for Hagar was to be the mother of his child as he fondly hoped, the son of promise. She was Sarah's servant, however, and he left her to control of her mistress. Hagar's haughty spirit would not brook the harshness which her insolence had provoked, and Sarah dealt hardly with her, and she fled from her face. So you have a lot happening in this home now, right? It was originally Sarah's idea, but now Sarah's blaming Abram for not standing up and saying no. You have Hagar, who's being prideful and boastful and kind of rubbing it in Sarah's face that she doesn't have a child. And it's just a mess, right? Now, notice I find it interesting again. You can read Genesis chapter 16, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but not once does God call Hagar Abraham's wife. Because in God's eyes, that marriage was illegitimate, and he doesn't recognize it, which I find interesting. But Hagar, we're going to focus on her this morning. Hagar is put in a difficult situation. Abraham wants Hagar to stay, not because he has this dying love for Hagar, but because of what she's giving him. She has a child coming, right? Abraham wants to keep her around, not because of her necessarily, but because of her child. So that hurts, doesn't it? And then you have your once boss you were friends with that is now angry with you. You're feeling like you're being tormented and you know that you've caused a lot of this situation. And so Hagar runs. Now, I don't know if you can relate to this at all. Maybe the situation hasn't been just you to a detail. I know that this doesn't describe anything that I have gone through, but I think we can learn from this. Have you ever been in a home 
Have you ever been in a situation where it feels like it's just completely toxic? You don't want to be there. It seems like everyone is angry with everyone else. And this might not just be in your home. Maybe it's not there, but maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at church. You know, this happens in church sometimes. And as you're being around these people and as you're in this situation, you come to a place where you just feel like you can't get any relief. And you might even come to the point where you ask God for help, but you don't even hear him. You don't even feel that he's there. And your head becomes a very bad place to be. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation before, but I have. And your head becomes a battleground, and it seems like the devil is winning. And Hagar is in this situation, and she just feels like her problems are so big that nothing can help her, and so she runs away. Maybe you felt that way too before. It seems like everything is so bad. It seems like everything is piling up. It's just, you know, I'm having a difficult time with my mom, or I can't stand my dad right now. Or maybe it seems like your son is acting up, or it seems like your boss is just riding you really hard. Maybe it's a combination of everything, and everything is just falling apart, and so you're tempted just to run away from it all and be done. This happens in churches too, doesn't it? Everything's falling apart, so you just, we're just going to leave. Well, notice what happens when Hagar does run. Something amazing. Genesis chapter 16, verse 6, But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as it pleases you. And when Sarah dealt hardly with her, she fled. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way of Shur. And I want to pause there for just a moment. You find a woman at a well. This should turn on a light bulb to you, right? In the New Testament, you have Jesus coming to the Samaritan woman at the well, and she's having relationship issues, right? You have done well to say that you are not married. You have had how many husbands, right? This is the Old Testament version of that story. You find Hagar at the well. She has just left everything that she knows. She's pregnant with a child. It seems like everyone hates her. What is going on? And she stops at this well. And guess who shows up? The angel of the Lord. It continues. Verse 8. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, not Abram's wife, notice, Sarah's maid. Where do you come from? And where will you go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarah. I love that. The angel comes and he doesn't immediately comfort Hagar. He does in just a moment, but he gets her to think about the situation that she is in. Where are you coming from? And what is your game plan? Where are you running to? Are you running to somewhere? What's going on? And she's forced to think about her situation, and she realizes, hopefully, that she's going, well, she's going nowhere. And notice what happens here in verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress, return to your problem, and submit yourself under her hand. But this is the part I want us to see here. Verse 13. And she called the name of the Lord that spoke unto her. 
Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that sees me? Does your translation, I'm reading the King James today, she said, You God that see me. Your translation might say something a little bit differently. How many of your Bibles say, She said unto him, El Roy? Any translations say that here? Okay, some in Big Rapids did. El Roy is the name that Hagar gives to God here, and it translates to a God, the God, that sees me. This is the only place in Scripture, and I find this fascinating, this is the only place in Scripture that when God is dealing with a human being, that the human being responds by giving God a name. Isn't that interesting? She says, I will call you El Roy, which means the God that sees me. Now, I find that interesting. She does not say the God that sees, but she says the God that sees me. And that accurately defines our God, doesn't it? Because of course we know that God sees all things. Of course we know that he's omnipotent and he's omniscient. He knows all things. He sees all things. He's everywhere at the same time. We know that that's God, but she takes it here to the personal level. This is the God that sees me and my situation and the child in my womb that is illegitimate and the problems back home and everything that I'm going through. And although he told me to return to my problem and that he would take care of it, I'm having faith that he knows what I need. And so she names God a personal creator and a personal savior of her life. The only time in scripture that this happens, and it's an Egyptian that has just gone through an illegitimate relationship, and God comes to her at the well and takes care of her and calls upon her very need. Isn't that the God we serve? Now, let's contrast that for just a moment. You have Paul with the unknown God. And then you have Hagar over here that says, the God that sees me, that sees my situation. They're the same God, but it depends on your relationship with him, doesn't it? Hagar knew who this God was, and she responded appropriately. And friends, today... We are put in the same situation. We have to choose, like our children's story said, which God we're going to serve. And there's only one true God, amen? But are we going to know him or are we going to keep him at arm's length to where he's actually an unknown God? Superstition, we talked about this at the beginning. Often we treat going to church like a superstition. We come to church and we think to ourselves, well, if I come to church and maybe I pay my tithe and I sing the hymn and I might even sing harmony, that everything will be fine because I'm coming to church. And granted, I love coming to church. It's important. I love singing harmony. Those are good things. But unless you know the God that you're singing that harmony to, what are you doing? Often we take this book and we're at home and we have this book. We might even read a little bit of it and we have it there and we begin to read it. And this is for pastors. Sometimes we read the Bible 
for intellectual knowledge only. We read the Bible to rebuke someone else, right? But often we treat this book not as something that was literally breathed into existence by God. And by the way, protected by God so that we could read it today. But often we treat this book as nothing more than just a charm. But in reality, this is a gift from the known God, right? This is him trying to communicate to you. If you haven't heard God lately, if you feel like, well, why isn't God talking to me? First of all, have you read what he said already, right? First of all, read what God has told you already, and he might give you more knowledge. And it might be that he will answer the problem that you're having through what he's written, amen? This is not just a superstitious book. This is a living book that was given by God himself. It's not a superstition. It helps us get to know the God that longs to be known and not unknown. Think of prayer for just a moment. How many times has this happened to us? I know it's happened to me. We come to church and someone says that they're struggling with something and we respond with, that sounds terrible, brother. I'll be praying for you, right? I know the situation that you're going through. I'll pray for you this week. And then we get home and we never do. So often we treat prayer that is supposed to, I mean, what does Sister White say? That when we pray, God does not stoop to our level, but he raises us up to his level. That's powerful, isn't it? So often we treat prayer so much like a, what does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, a vain repetition? And we fail to remember and recognize that we are communicating to the creator of the universe the most powerful and awe-inspiring being that has ever been, that doesn't have a beginning, that doesn't have an end. He is God. When you pray, you're not just praying to a wall. You're not just praying to hear the sound of your own voice. You are communicating with God himself. And if you're not praying to God, I question who you're praying to, right? If you're not praying to someone, if you're not praying to God, then you're just talking to yourself. And what's the definition of insanity? I mean, think about it. If you're not addressing your prayer to God and truly knowing who you're addressing and keeping that in mind, but you're just babbling on, then we're treating prayer as not a gift from God, but we're treating it as a superstition. I think we as Christians need to quit treating Christianity, quit treating devotions, quit treating church, quit treating all of these things as superstitions and begin to recognize that these are tools that God has given us to know him. God does not want to be labeled as an unknown God. He has done everything in his power to make himself known to you. And he doesn't just do that by being upon the cross, although that is the pivotal moment of God saying, I am here. But I guarantee you that each and every one of you here has had a moment in your life that you knew that God was communicating with you. Just you. You've all had experiences where you know that God was communicating with 
you. It might not have been audibly. It might not have even been an impression, but it may have been an experience that you were like, that was God. That, that was God. God has done that to each and every one of us. He not only did it once or twice or three times to make himself known, but he does it on a day-to-day basis. God does not want to be what Sister White calls mere formalism. But God wants to be known. He wants to be, like Hagar said, El Roy, right? The God that sees me. Friends, today, hopefully it's just a reminder. But what we do, what we read, what we preach, what we listen to, all of these things, it's not a superstition. It's not like seeing that black cat run across the road. It's not like all of these other things. But friends, this is getting to know not just the most powerful God ever, but a personal God that walks and talks and communicates with you. Are you going to be devoted to him? Let's not ignorantly worship. Let's know who he is. You have been listening to Garrett Morgan, pastor of Big Rapids, Bristol, and Reed City Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit one of his churches this coming Sabbath or a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. You will find the Big Rapids Seventh-day Adventist Church at 1031 Rose Avenue in Big Rapids, and their church service begins at 9.30 a.m. Or visit the Bristol Seventh-day Adventist Church located at 11-225 East 8 Mile Road in Tustin. And their church service begins at 11.30 a.m. Or visit the Reed City Seventh-day Adventist Church located at 17290 U.S. Highway 10 in Hersey. And their church service begins at 3 p.m. This program has been a Strong Tower Radio production.